Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B. Where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about depression and its intersection with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and trauma. If you're interested in furthering this conversation, please email me at contact at drbconnections.com. Or if you want to know more about me, go to my website at www.drbconnections.com. Now, let's get started. Hello. All right. Today, we're going to be talking about depression and its intersection with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and trauma. So let's get started. First, depression is a mood disorder. This is the definition of depression. It's it's a mood disorder that causes us to have a persistent feeling of sadness and really a loss of, a loss of interest in typical normal activities of our lives. And so depression is also like a spectrum. So you can be a little bit depressed or you can be completely in the depths of despair depressed. It's not sort of a one and done. You have the flu or you don't have the flu. It's there's a, there's a spectrum involved in how impacted your life is by depression. And it can even be impacted differently depending on different incidents or times of year. There's even seasonal affective disorder, which is a form of depression that happens in the winter months when, you know, you're not getting enough sunlight and it kicks people into this depressive mode. Depression isn't a weakness. People often say who don't experience depression or have never had the experience of feeling depressed say things like snap out of it or pull yourself up by the bootstraps. But in reality, that's not a thing. People who are feeling depressed really do feel like they cannot get up. So even if you are up and moving about, still internally you're feeling just almost suffocated inside. So symptoms of depression include being tearful, feeling hopeless. If you lose interest in most of the normal things that you're interested in, you can have sleep disturbances, insomnia, or on the flip side, you can just sleep too much and you just want to sleep continuously without ever getting out of bed. People are tired They can have weight loss or weight gain added to this. They can have anxiety, which we're going to actually do an entire episode on anxiety. But there's anxiety and anxiety and depression are often best friends and like to hang out together. So there's also at times feelings of suicidal thoughts and sometimes attempts. So all of these things, this kind of level of deep sadness and woe can really interfere, obviously, with somebody's normal day-to-day life or 
the satisfaction of a person's life. Now add COVID-19, add the chaos of fires in my state, all over the state of California, we're just almost swallowed up in smoke. And I feel like people are experiencing much, much higher levels of depression than during the normal time of life, pre-COVID, I'll say. But depression is all is is nothing new. It's not a new, it's not COVID-19. We've had depression around for a long time. And so we've studied depression intensely. We've studied it in children. We've studied it in women. We've studied it in men. We've studied it in the substance misuse populations. We've studied it in a whole bunch of different arenas. So we actually are pretty smart when it comes to depression. However, what I wanted to do this episode about today was really starting to look at depression through the lens of adverse childhood experiences and trauma, because we haven't really done that with all the information that we have about depression. And I think that it's going to lend or shed a lot of light on how we understand and treat people with depression long-term and ultimately try to find cures and treatments to avoid depression in the first place. So here are some statistics. One of the problems is one in eight women, women are the most, between 40 and age 59, are the most prevalent group suffering from depression. Now, I have a few hypotheses about why that's the case. One in eight's pretty high. And between 40 and 59, you'd think, wow, that's a weird time to suffer from depression, especially why is it so prevalent in women at this particular time in life? One of the reasons is women's brains are actually reorganizing around the age 40. We're leading up to it around 40. We're, we're kicking into this new We used to, you know, we call it a midlife crisis for men, but really women go through their own version of a midlife crisis. I sometimes like to call it um, the bullshit factor really shows up around 40 where all of a sudden, you know, you've gone through your 20s and your maybe your 30s and you've been caregiving and taking care of children or partners, husbands um, throughout this, this period of time. And you really want to do a good job at that, and you want to be a good parent, a good mom, a good, you know, wife, and often are we're often also taking care of, you know, elderly parents, and we take a lot of pride and value in being good caregivers, and then all of a sudden around 40, you're like, wait a second. Why am I making your peanut butter and jelly sandwich when you're perfectly capable of making your own peanut butter and jelly sandwich for yourself? Or why am I the only one in the house doing the laundry and nobody else is ever helping out with that? Or you just all of a sudden this lens of awareness shows up around 40 and it really becomes, it's part of the perimenopausal process where some hormones that are in existence in order to get women through caregiving and 
partnering with people in order to have children to keep our evolutionary survival going, start to recede in at around 40, and then they continue to recede more and more and more as we age and go through menopause because they're not necessary anymore. But what they do is we can still be loving caregivers and still be loving partners, but we also see the world very differently because we don't have this over abundance of this particular hormone that makes us not really see the flaws in people. Because imagine if we saw all the little tiny flaws that exist when you're trying to raise young children, work, go to school, have a relationship, and all of those things. It's really almost a survival strategy for our body to be able to enjoy that, really enjoy our ability to take care of others. But it becomes more about taking care of ourselves or at least beginning to at least investigate the process of taking care of ourselves around 40. And if you talk to women as they're creeping up to 40 or they're just past 40, it's a pretty common experience that you, you know, it's just interesting. So ask women, start to survey them and say, huh, I wonder what's going on here. But that's what's actually going on. There's a really great book by, oh, let me look, Christine Northrup. And she wrote a book called The Wisdom of Menopause, where she actually talks about this process. And it's a great book. So I'm just going to throw that shout out to Christine Northrup. She's a really awesome MD and particularly in women's health. So check her out if you're interested in more of that. All right, so back to depression specifically, kind of the overarching lens of what is this thing called depression? Well, depression is a, a mood disorder. It's the way that we feel that doesn't actually match up with what's what's really happening in our lives. Things can be really going perfectly fine and well, but we can still feel deeply depressed and not really know why. So that's that's the the conflict around depression is that it it forces us to look through a lens that's not necessarily accurate. What we do know about adverse childhood experiences, if you don't know much about ACEs, check them out on the internet. There's lots of information and I talk about it in a lot of different podcasts. But in particular, one of the things that we know about the original adverse childhood experiences study is that a person who has four or more ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, are 460% more likely to suffer from depression in their lifetime. Now, that's across races and socioeconomic groups. So that is a very powerful, powerful statistic and number that we know that children who suffer from trauma or adversity in childhood grow up and then suffer from depression. So this is what I mean when I say the intersection of ACEs and trauma with depression. We know that trauma and adversity in childhood lead to the experience and diagnosis of depression later in life. So we talk about depression as if it's this standalone thing that just happens to you, but it's not. 
We've learned so, so, so much about this mood disorder. Or, or we could say we've learned so, so much about a person's response to trauma and how people end up trying to survive trauma in a way that makes sense to them. So one of the things that's interesting, and I think I've shared this before as well, but it's totally worth saying again, is that the first prescription written by doctors in the 1940s was the medication called methamphetamine. Hello, surprise, methamphetamine? You mean the drug that's on the street that people are addicted to and it's wreaking havoc on our society? Okay, it started out as an antidepressant medication. So it's not a surprise that people who suffer from depression seek out ways to manage their depression if they can't get it managed in the mainstream through a doctor, psychiatrist, therapist, support, that they might seek medication that's accessible on the street now. So just something to think about. The problem currently is that we know from the research that depression has roots in childhood trauma. But first, <laughs> Most of the medical and psychiatric community don't train or focus on child development or children at all. So let's talk about that. We view depression as something that shows up in our office or exists sort of as an adult disorder. But the truth is, it's a disorder that is built, for lack of a better word, in childhood. So early childhood is a really powerful time in people's lives for everyone. There's no exception. We, we never again in our lives are gonna get the bang for our buck that we get in early childhood. But to start with adults and treat adult symptoms and dysfunctional behavior actually doesn't make the most sense considering the information that we now know about adverse childhood experiences and its impact on depression or its lead to depression. It, it brings us into suffering from that particular mood disorder. A behavior that seems completely dysfunctional can actually be a behavior that's totally functional for what's going on for a particular person. Let me explain that a little bit. So we were talking about methamphetamine. If you suffer from depression in the 40s, a doctor might write you a prescription for methamphetamine. If you're a person today in 2020 and you're suffering from depression and you seek out, you know somebody who sells methamphetamine, you might seek out some of that drug in order to feel better so you can do the things that you need to do to keep going in your life, it's a dysfunctional it's a dysfunctional option, but at the same time, if you think about it, it kind of makes some sense that we have to look at the big picture of what's going on. If, if somebody's suffering from depression and they pick a medication, 
in order to battle that depression. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's weed. We don't know. It could be a whole bunch of different things. But that's not completely a dysfunctional response if you don't have access to proper health care, medical care, psychiatric care, mental health care. It's It actually is, I think, pretty obvious that people are going to move in that direction. We know this now, so we can support people who have depression by providing them with access to care and medications that are actually legal drugs now in order to treat this disorder. So if when we look at it through a totally different lens, how did we get to depression? And then once we're at depression, what do we do? Then we have a better chance at actually conquering this I'll even call it a disease because we want to we want to progress in this area. I always say we have to go back to the beginning. I say that partly because I'm a parent infant mental health person. Those are my roots. So as a clinical psychologist, you know, with a specialization in parent infant mental health means that I trained fairly deeply in psychoanalytic theory, which seems scary to people. You know, they think, oh, Freud, but it's really not that scary. It really just means going in and and learning a lot about your unconscious and how the unconscious experience really impacts your conscious behavior. And that we now call sort of like mind and body, but when we call it psychoanalytic thinking, it it sounds it sounds different and more scary. But remember that I'm a humanist. I am truly a Rogerian. Carl Rogers is my one of my heroes. And what he would say, or one what he is known for saying is meeting your meeting your client in a space of unconditional positive regard. And so I was trained to dig deep into the unconscious, into the pre-verbal world, which is the world of a baby, really, and find ways to make sense of those early, early life experiences in a conscious and verbal world. So as a therapist, as a, as a psychologist, what I would want to do when I met clients was not only to look at what's going on right now in terms of experience, but I want to understand their earlier experiences and how maybe some of their unconscious or pre-verbal experiences are impacting or driving behaviors in current time that affect their lives. Because when we can bring something up from the unconscious to the conscious, then we can actually process it. And once we process it and come to terms with an experience that we once were totally unable to understand, if we can now put it into words and process through it, that's where we actually find healing and the ability to integrate that trauma or adversity into who we are today, or who we are when we do that. 
So let's move into the next phase of this episode, which is a personal story. So the biggest risk factor adult depression is early adversity. We know this. We know that early adversity leads to depression later on. Hello, 460% of people with adverse childhood experiences have depression later in life. What we also know is that co-regulation with a well-regulated, loving, responsive adult caregiver is the most powerful protective buffer against adult depression. So let me explain that a little bit more. Co-regulation with a well-regulated, loving, responsive adult caregiver. That means if we take a baby and place them in the unit of a person, a relationship, relationships are incredibly powerful and really drive the architecture of our brain and our brain chemistry. Babies regulate their emotions from other people. So if you hold a crying baby and you stay calm, the baby's able to actually borrow your calm. We do this in adult relationships as well. If you're in a, if you're crying hysterically and your loving partner who you trust and care about puts their arms around you and hugs you and holds you in a calm, loving way, you can borrow their regulation. This is so important and such a cool tool to use in our relationships with other people. It's a little bit weird to think about using other people as the medicine to help us heal, but in the grand scheme of things, it actually makes tons of sense. So what we need to recognize is in order to treat adult depression, we can't ignore early childhood and we certainly can't ignore infancy because that's where the roots are of that's where the roots of depression exist or begin. The thing about being a kid or a baby though is that we don't have an accurate reporting system. We probably really don't have an accurate reporting system really as an adult either. So we only have our perspective of our experience as a child and then incorporate with that the stories that other people have told us about their perspective of our experience. And it can get really confusing very quickly. Development contributes so much to our perspective of our earliest experiences. So what that means is that if I'm a toddler, a toddler development, so I'm at, you know, I like to call them the terrific twos. People sometimes call them the terrible twos. It's really the period of life when you're autonomous and breaking away from your parents for the first time, but in a safe way for a two-year-old. Now, that that's all you've got when you're two is I want to be over there and and you want me to be here. And we don't have a whole lot of, well, we don't have any of our prefrontal cortex really wired in yet. So we're not able to think rationally about why I want to be on the other side of the room and grab the toy from somebody else. I just want to do it. So I do it because we're driven that way at that particular age and stage of development. So depending on our development, whatever stage of development that we're at contributes to how we view the world. 
and how we view the world and our experiences are really important about how we then are able to talk about it, process it, understand it later in life as our brain grows and we learn more things about ourselves. Insight helps even more with that. So insight being meaning seeing things from somebody else's perspective or point of view. Here's how I want to explain depression and anxiety in my life. And it's related to two different kinds of trauma. And it's just a, it's just a version. There's so many different ways to explain depression and how we get to a place of being a person who suffers from depression anywhere along the depressive spectrum. So, because remember, some people suffer from bipolar depression, which is a very significant, severe level of depression. Other people, they used to call it dysthymia, but now they don't, that word's gotten thrown out. But a much less persistent, lower level of depression, but still in and of itself, still a depressive disorder and state of being. The first kind is related to a persistent, ongoing trauma or adversity. So here's where the intersection really happens. So listen carefully. This is where depression meets adverse childhood experiences and trauma. If you think about a persistent, ongoing trauma or adversity that then leads to depression later in life. So my my example of this is that's a real personal story for me and it, it it breaks my heart a lot is that my mom, who's the youngest of lots of children, so she's the youngest of 13 children. Her mother, so my grandmother died when my before my mom was even two years old. And so that death, is a huge trauma for anybody. Losing a mom or a dad, losing a parent, is probably one of the most traumatic events. It is the most traumatic event that a person can experience, and particularly in infancy. So we often say things like, oh, they don't remember. Oh, yes, the body remembers. Even though, remember how we were talking about pre-verbal experiences? So this is an experience that my mom had losing her mom as a baby without having the ability to talk about it, have words to express how devastating that loss was to her as a baby. It's not a one and done. That's a persistent ongoing trauma, the loss of a parent, because when she, when my mom then became three and four and five, every new stage of development is met with the need to process not having a mom because her mom died and making trying to make sense out of that. Well, try to understand how that would make sense to a five-year-old. So my mom was born in 1939. And remember, she's the youngest of a a lot of children. So when my mom was five and going to school, she remembers, this is a story that she told me, that she went to school when she was probably maybe 
three, three and a half with her older siblings because no, they didn't have anything to do with this little baby. They just took her with her, took them with her to school and she just would take naps and just kind of be at school with everybody else. But she didn't really have her place. Move on up the childhood ladder. She doesn't have the experience of having a mom and verbally knowing how to talk about that experience and then losing her. She only has the perspective of having somebody in her life who love, love, loved her because remember how hot-wired we are when we get, when we have a baby. So, and then that person that loves us so, so, so much goes away and we don't know why or where. And the impact of that trauma on dad, other siblings, and a, a slew of other things that come into play there. So I call this a persistent, ongoing, adverse childhood experience trauma of losing a parent in infancy. Then there's all the other things that fall into place around that. So what we could say is, and I'll share, honestly, you know, I really think that every, I really believe, I really view depression as a highly spectrum disorder. So I think that everybody has the capacity to feel depressed. And some people feel depressed on the very, very far end and can go into the deep well of depression and where it's really, really difficult to get out. And other people can experience depressive episodes or shorter terms of deep sadness that feels hopeless. But eventually are able to get treatment for and and move move through in my world as a as a clinical psychologist i see somebody like my mom who lost their parent as a baby and i automatically think okay depression is in this history like there's really no way around it it would almost be weird for there not to be some level of depression and even anxiety at a clinical level for both of those, for a person who has experienced such an extreme loss. That being said, this persistent ongoing trauma of losing a parent is, is persistent because it happens every new stage of development from infancy to early childhood, through early adolescence, into adolescence, and then even into adulthood. And then combine that with the the time in life, you know, the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, you know, people weren't talking about children losing their parents and depression and the and how to treat a child who has this kind of a loss. There we just weren't doing that in on a clinical level and especially for people who grew up the you know, where my mom grew up. So anyway, so moving on from her experience that then lends itself to the question of how does that going to impact her children, right? Because now we have a mom who's lost a mom as a baby. She really didn't have a replacement parent mom. She did have a dad who was in her life, but also suffering from this traumatic loss. She also had siblings, but none of them really stepped in until she was older 
to be sort of that surrogate parent, then what does that mean? Now, here's how that epigenetic and sort of cultural transmission can happen is that when she then becomes a mom, she's hotwired like like most moms to love her children, you know, to the death. And she did and does. She's still living. And at the same time, she doesn't have the long-term experience of what it's like to be loved at that level or just to be loved by a mom throughout your entire life. It's been an interesting place for me to be in as the daughter of a mother who lost her mother because I can now look back at her life. And I actually give my mom a ton of credit for being such a loving mom for not ever having that experience herself. Now, there's no question that, you know, my mom suffers from depression on a certain level. And I think that all of us do as her children on certain levels suffer from our own versions of depression because of this early traumatic experience that happened literally over, gosh, 60, 70 years ago. Now, depression on the flip side of that is a big event that causes grief and loss but it's an event, it's a one-time thing. My dad died unexpectedly when I was 32. So I adored my dad, adored him, but I didn't didn't live with him after I was 12 because my parents divorced. But I spoke to him regularly, we were very close, and I identify with him and, and loved him a lot. So losing a parent at 32 was still a humongously traumatic event for me. However, I have insight. I have experience and education and training and and access to therapy that helped me to process the grief and loss of this major event as an adult. That's very different than the experience my mom had of losing a parent in basically infancy, early childhood. So I hope that that makes sense to you in terms of how we how we can look at how depression shows up. And then after that, after losing my dad, like I could feel myself go into these waves of depression, but I was also able to recognize that the the process of what I was going through, and really it was the natural process of grief and loss where my mom going through these experiences of depression, which are totally normal for a person who's lost a parent, but she doesn't have the insight because she's a baby or a young child or a young teenager. And so there's no explanation for why she's going up and down or whatever. And nobody's available to explain that. I'm not sure that you can explain that to a young child anyway. But there are things that we can do to treat depression in young children and in these kinds of situations today. We're really smart about that, so that's great. As you can see, it's a different, it's a different process and a different level. It leads to a different kind of depression that is much more difficult to access and probably to treat when its roots are heavily embedded in early childhood. So why is this at all 
optimistic or why does this lead us to any kind of feelings that we can be resilient or, you know, move forward? So we know the risk of adversity in childhood leads to changes in the brain architecture and brain chemistry in childhood and persists into adulthood. So the brain architecture is being laid down. Those roadways or pathways are being set in early infancy and early childhood and the brain chemistry along with it. So what neurotransmitters and the amount are firing are all getting set and started in, in early childhood. So if we know this, here's where the resiliency and the, well, here's where the optimism comes in. Let's do it right. Let's do it right from the get-go. We don't have to wait around. We have the algorithm in order to build resiliency, to treat depression in ways that we've never treated depression before. We didn't treat depression 50 years ago. We have that information now, so we can use it. That's optimistic, and that builds resiliency. The other part of this that I want to say as a credit to my mom in terms of resiliency is that even though my mom suffered from this tremendous loss in her childhood and infancy, she was able to overcome to some degree that huge trauma and raise three, I'll say, you know, moderately successful and decent human beings. I, I think, being one of them and my two siblings. So that's that's a huge credit to her because with that level of loss, a lot of things also could have happened. And, and she was able to access some of her resiliency in order to pass that resiliency on to her children. The study of trauma isn't new. Like this isn't new. We act, we, we, it sounds like, wow, adverse childhood experiences have just shown up on the scene in the world of understanding trauma. But the truth is that even now that we know that trauma leads to long-term social determinants of health, it's not new. We've been studying this for over 20 years. We've been really digging deep. I mean, actually, the study of neuroscience did start with Freud or back during the Freud days, but but we've gotten phenomenally better at understanding the brain and neuroscience and neurochemistry since we're able to access the fMRI imaging and study different brains and under different circumstances. So I started studying adverse childhood experiences really 20 years ago when the first study about ACEs was published through the Kaiser Permanente study. And lots of people in early childhood know what I'm talking about because they were learning about this as well because we're so emotionally and educationally invested in this early period of life and know how powerful it is and know that the beginning has a huge impact on the middle and the end and future generations as well. That's the, that's the epigenetic contribution. So this is, this is all great news. This is why I call it optimism, delusional optimism, is because we know this now and we can build and create and invest in what we know. 
So if we invest in relationship-based care and education, that's trauma-informed. If we invest in purposeful experiences for young children and families and support families and helping them have purposeful experiences, or if we invest in understanding child development, ages and stages, the nuances of what it means to be a one-year-old versus a two-year-old versus a three-year-old versus a four-year-old. All of these things are so important to understanding humanity. When we invest in health and wellness, so that means medical care, prenatal care, maternal depression support, and pediatric care and nutrition for children and just vaccines and all the things that we need in order to have healthy growing children that's this is what's optimistic about this so we when we invest in this way we reap the benefits exponentially i can't i can't say enough about understanding and then utilizing the the information and research that we have on not only trauma, but also on early childhood development and its impact long-term on resilience. So let's jump into the actionable takeaways. This has been a long episode, I know, but I hope it's been informative. Depression. So if you suffer from depression, step back and run that run your own depression through the lens of trauma and try to understand your own depression a little bit differently. Run it through like, what are the experiences that could be contributors to my depression or when I feel depressed or go into a more depressive state through through my training and education, you know, I've been able to process my own experiences across, like really epigenetically across generations to look at, okay, is depression really genetic or is it really a chain of events that lead people to experience depression? And then there's breaks in that chain that lead and help us become more resilient and heal because we're really looking at healing and not necessarily living in the past experience forever, but trying to find ways to experience our life in a more healing way. So that's the first, that's the first actionable takeaway is to really process your experience of depression and run it through the lens of trauma. You know, what are the things that happened to you? What did happen to maybe your parents or your earliest caregivers? And how could that potentially contribute? And you may need to do that with a medical professional, you know, a therapist, a psychologist, a licensed clinical social worker, somebody who has the training to do that with you. The second thing, actionable takeaway, number two, just be kind to yourself. Remember, It comes and it goes. It's not a one and done. It feels like when you're feeling depressed or when something happens and you just get kicked into that place of hopelessness or sadness or whatever it is for you, the depth, you know, wherever that is for you, be kind to yourself when you're there. Be kind to yourself always if you can. 
But here's a, here's a strategy. Put up post-it notes in places that stay there to remind you that you're a, that you're a good person, that you're worth loving, that you're lovable, and that people do care about you. And so if you put some post-it notes up in the bathroom, on the bathroom mirror or in the kitchen or inside the pantry door or the whatever, even inside your, on the front door as you walk out of your house every day, being able to read and see some of those, I'll, I'll just call them inspirational sayings to yourself, it's like talking to yourself, really do have a powerful impact on your brain especially if you say them out loud on a consistent basis, but especially when you're feeling deeply down. So the third thing is make a music list. So whether that's just make a list of music that you like to listen to when you're feeling bad, whatever bad actually means. Maybe it's when you're feeling mad. Maybe it's when you're feeling sad. Maybe it's when you're feeling excited about something or really happy. But I like to create for myself music lists for when I'm particularly sad or particularly angry. Because for whatever reason, there's something about music. And I've done an episode, I think it's on YouTube, called Music Heals Trauma. And the vibration of music has the ability to break up trauma in our system and helps us to better process and release it. So being able for me to jump in the car when I'm feeling really down about something or when I'm upset and irritated and mad, I like to listen to my mad song list. And I always come back feeling better. Now it's a little harder to just go for a drive because we're in chaos and COVID, but whatever you can do, find a way to integrate music. And you don't want to enter, you don't want to be seeking this out when you're feeling depressed. You want to have it prepped and ready for when you are like have a, have a Spotify list or a Pandora list or burn a CD. If that's even a thing anymore, I don't know. So music access music. If you went for different feelings because that's also very insightful whatever part of the music that you grab onto is it the is it the part that is you know it's the lyrics or the bass or is it what is it you know that helps you to feel better all right last but not least get treatment 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 and that may include medication I don't know, go to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a psychologist is not gonna prescribe for you. Go even to your MD, they will prescribe for you. Do a depression inventory, depression screening. Get medical clinical treatment for your depression at any level, even if it's at the lower levels of depression, treatment is key. People cannot pull themselves up by the bootstraps to get out of depression. Sure, we ride the wave and come out of it, but there are lots of ways in order to treat depression that can make that wave riding a lot more manageable and insightful and helpful in terms of coming out on the other end. 
which also makes us better parents, better teachers, better employees, better pet owners, whatever you are. It makes you better when you're able to go through that process in a less painful way than by doing it all alone and by yourself. So with that, my friends and my dears, I am gonna say, great to be here. Go out, leave a life print. I love you until next time. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now go leave a life friend.